Proverbs chapter 25, verse 28. And what we're talking about this morning, as we began last week, talking about sin. And we titled, and I thought last week I was going to get a lot further than what I did. And so this is kind of a carryover a little bit uh, from last week. Um, Six silent sins. Sins that either are intentionally hidden or just neglected to be spoken about. For whatever reason, things that we don't identify as significant enough or perhaps they're awkward to discuss. And that's kind of what we started on last week and we want to address one of those uh, this week. And so Proverbs chapter 25 verse 28 is where we'll take our reading and we'll try to also look at some other scriptures this morning If the Lord will help us to do so. It says this. He that hath no rule over his own spirit is like a city that is broken down and without walls. So again, it's Proverbs 25, 28. He that hath no rule over his own spirit is like a city that is broken down and without walls. The title of our message this morning is Addiction and self-control. Addiction and self-control. Now the writer of Proverbs here gives us this picture of what it is like to have no self-control. And so in my mind when I read this text, I see exactly what he describes. There's a city, and let's just assume for the moment that it's a bustling city. It's not a dying one, it's one that's strong and it has a lot of industry. And of course, my mind, for whatever reason, I think back to biblical times, since this is when it's written, so I'm not thinking of a city as we would recognize it, but one that perhaps the writer would recognize. And he says, essentially, a person who does not rule over his own spirit, who cannot, does not control himself, has no self-control, is like a city, and the walls are broken down. And so, there's a number of things when I think about the effects of a walls that are broken down surrounding a city that could possibly happen. Number one, as we all know, there are enemies. Both spiritual enemies to our lives spiritual enemies to nations and to entities and there are natural enemies that people might have and so if you're a city especially during this time it would be considered a necessary provision to have walls surrounding you so as not to let those who desire to hurt you in a result of that is that you're going to protect That which is valuable to you. In the city, you're going to have homes. You're going to have valuable items. But perhaps most importantly, you're going to have people, your citizens. Those you care about. And so not only are you opening up to letting enemies in. But you're also exposing those things which are valuable, be tangible goods or people to those enemies. And so now, that which you love is in jeopardy. And then third and finally, what comes to my mind is you have plans for the future. 
You have things that you want to accomplish. And the only way to do that is to have some sense of order. And one of the necessary components of order would be to regulate who or what is coming in and who or what is going out. And so if you do not have a city that has walls around it, the effect is that whomever and whatever is going to make their way in and is going to jeopardize both what you find valuable in the present and what you desire to accomplish in the future. And he says that a man or a woman who does not have self-control is very much like this city. Enemies will have access to you, to your heart and to your life. Enemies will then jeopardize those people and things that you love. And enemies will jeopardize your future plans. I think very much the story that came to my my mind this week was Absalom. Remember, David had a son named Absalom. And one of the things he did when he tried to take over the throne is that he conveniently stationed himself outside of the city. And when people were coming into the city, Absalom, if he could discern in some way, he was able to discern that they were coming to the city with a grievance that they desired to be judged or reconciled. And Absalom, in an attempt to turn the hearts of the people coming into the city, would basically say something like, you know, I've heard your grievance, but there's nobody in, in the city that the king has appointed to be a judge over you. But if I were a judge, I would remedy your situation. And slowly, as people were coming over a period of time to the city, their hearts begin to have an affinity towards Absalom and at the same time against David. He changed the hearts of the people. See, when when we do not have self-control, slowly and methodically, those things that are controlling us begin to change us. Our appetites, our desires go unchecked. And suddenly, it's not just about our activity, but it's about the person whom we have become in light of the uncontrolled activity. We have changed. Here, the person who wrote this proverb is telling us, It's necessary to have self-control. This morning, as we talk about that, a form, an obvious form of, I'll use these words synonymously, intemperance. So, for any of our young people here, to temper yourself is to limit or control yourself. So, temperance, the Bible speaks highly of. That you have the ability, and we'll talk about that in a moment, to limit... Those things which you crave. And so someone who is intemperate is someone who does not have that control or yields continuously to pleasure or refuses to experience pain. A form of intemperance is addiction. Now, I'll just tell you right up front 
I do not agree with the way that our culture defines addiction. They'll call it a disease. And it's not to suggest that there cannot be physiological components to addiction. Because there may very well be. There is. But tucked within that explanation, tucked within that definition, is a clear attempt to avoid the judgment of God. What it attempts to do is divorce a person's actions from the consequences and the judgment that is going to come from their actions. And yet what we find in scripture is that you and I are responsible for the things that we say and do. And when we try or when the world tries to convince us that we can perform things and do certain activity that God has deemed sinful, that we can speak in ways, either with a form of harshness, either with gossip or whatever the form of speech may be, that God is called sinful. And yet because of something within us, because of some disease that we are not responsible for what we have done, that is a lie. And what Satan tries to do is enable and, and give comfort in people's sins that they might not seek to change. But listen, the biblical antidote for addiction is self-control. And the Bible teaches us self-control is not just a disciplining of the will. Right, because there can also be an opposite attitude. One is, it's a disease, there's nothing you can do about it, let's cater to that person's weakness. The other is, you just need to toughen up. But the Bible gives us a different story. The Bible tells us that temperance or self-control is a gift of the Holy Spirit. So when we think about the moment that God saves us, We often can go to the book of Galatians, and I'll turn there very quickly. You know the scripture, no doubt. It tells us about the fruits of the Spirit. It says this, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. Now, very often when people describe their salvation experience, these three things tend to emanate in the description. God gave me a great love for people, and I'm not going to in any form or fashion say that that's not the case because that's what happened to me. There was a love. There was a joy that was present that replaced the feelings of turmoil that had been. But in addition to those discernible and experiential, uh, uh, those feelings that I got was also a means to accomplish things. Long-suffering is another gift of the Holy Spirit. Long-suffering doesn't feel good, does it? When you're patient with somebody? No, it doesn't feel good at all. But it's a fruit of the Spirit. He continues. Where is it at here? It says, gentleness, goodness, and faith. Gentleness and goodness oftentimes don't feel good. Right? Because very often when I am called to be gentle... That's the last response I want to have. I want to be angry and I want to blow up. I want to get all of this, the the, the anger that, that is boiling because of something that is just taking place outside of me. But God has taught me in light of the sin that I might be exposed to, to be gentle. To not be harsh and demeaning. That is a gift of the Holy Spirit. 
And he comes here and he tells us as well, meekness. And then the last one he says is temperance, self-control. Let me look at another scripture really quickly that tells us about self-control. This is what Paul wrote to Timothy in one of his last letters. For God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. That word sound mind means self-control. So when God saved us, he gave us a spirit of self-control. So let me ask you a question. If you have lost the joy of God's salvation, and that can happen to Christians, very frequently we hear Christians testify that they go through a prolonged period of their life or a season of their life where they're discouraged and they're depressed and they begin to pray. And what do they begin to pray for? God, restore to me the joy of thy salvation. They echo the sentiment that the psalmist wrote because they know that the fruits of the Spirit, that what they have access to is an experience greater through the help of the Holy Spirit than what they're presently receiving. But what if a person lacks self-control? What if your spirit, or rather your flesh, dictates to you what you're going to do? Well, let me give you a piece of advice. Pray that God would give you self-control. That he would enable, that he would help you to have self-control. Self-control can be worked on but it is also just like all the others can all the other fruits of the spirit are things that god and i have to be co-laborers together to develop in my life self-control is one of those so as we look at addiction as we consider for a moment and and i want to i want to say this just for a moment i think addiction is much more pervasive than what people realize in our culture we are a, we're addicted to consumption like no other culture has ever been because things in comparison to what they have been are so accessible and cheap that even people that live presently that don't live in our country cannot conceive of the amount of things that we can consume and want, be that not only, I'm not just talking about eating something, but consume anything with our eyes, with our ears, with our mouth. We have access to an incredible amount of things for extremely cheap. And because of that, there can develop this attitude, well, if I can afford it, if it's not patently sinful, then I ought to be able to consume it. And perhaps from a political and economic standpoint, that's correct. But from a spiritual standpoint, ought it be correct? I would say no. What are people addicted to today? What are things that people struggle? Me included, I told you last week. These things hit me in the heart. Because I see, when I look at the reflection of Scripture, I see myself. And so this morning, what are things that people struggle in our culture with resisting and controlling? Well, they're obvious ones, right? Right? Like the two that we think of when we think of addiction is alcohol and drugs. And certainly I'll say this morning, there are many people who presently struggle controlling those substances. 
I would give a warning to all young people here this morning that there is a sense to which Satan will make those things look appealing and it will, uh, uh, it will cause your inhibitions to be uh, relaxed and you'll think, you know what, I can control it. But listen, there's a monster in those things that you don't presently see. And many people who thought I can control that were only led a little bit for, farther and a little bit farther until they recognize I don't have a leash on that. It has a leash on me and it's controlling me. I can assure you I've never met someone who was an addict to hard substances like that that said, you know what? One day I want to grow up. I want to wreck my family. I want to wreck my life. I don't want to have a good career. I want to be addicted to some little substance that I have to have every single day. People don't start that way, but that's... That is the lie that Satan entices people with. And it's usually in the form of two ways. Number one, I want to have fun. Or number two, I want to escape the hardships of life. And from those two things, whispers in our heart and in our mind and perhaps from our peers begin to suggest that perhaps we should do that. This morning, I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on that other than to say, run from it. Run from it. Don't give Satan an open door into your life because, listen, those things have shipwrecked many, many, many people's lives, their homes, their job, so many things beyond what you presently see in a bottle. It's one that prescription medicine today is another thing that people are addicted to. The idea that just because a doctor gives it That it's somehow okay. All I'll say is this. Be careful. Be very careful. Because those things are addictive to the flesh. And they are hard to yield. Or rather hard to control in ourselves. What's something else that is addictive? We talked about it last week. Sex. It can be something that people are addicted to. In all the forms that we spoke about last week. And that's all I'll say about it. Because we spent a long time last week talking about it. What about money? Isn't that what covetousness is? Truly, or at least an attribute of covetousness is that I am going to so prioritize this that I can attain as much as I possibly can. And some people are not addicted to the effect, rather the, uh, how do I want to say this? Some people are not addicted to what you earn, but rather the means of earning it. Right? Some people are well past financially. You think of people who are billionaires and they're well past ever needing anything. They'll never be able to spend what they have accumulated. And yet, they love what they do to achieve it. People can be addicted to work. Where they love, and in every workforce, in every career, there are, there's a culture and there are goals and there are other people around us. And when we get within that framework and within that clique of people and we start seeing the achievements and you start seeing the, the, uh, the things that entice us to try to be successful, very easily work, that work culture can be something that people get addicted to. Be careful. Be careful. Because it's amazing how many people's Ruin their families over work. What's something else? Attention. Now, young person today, this is a 
this makes me nauseous to even think about, but for those of you older that don't know, and there's some things I'm about to say you probably have no conception of, and that's okay. All of these social media outlets, at their core, are very often designed for you to get attention. And there are people who make millions of dollars a year building a facade in their life, taking a five-second or ten-second video to show to the world that they might have millions of people look at them and envy their life, emulate their life. You all, for anybody that's on social media, obviously knows people do not publish their doubts their fears, their pains, their sins, their ugliness, or very often if they do, it's an attempt to do what? Gain attention. Don't be addicted to other people's attention because it can be an addictive thing that people that just like to know that you're well spoken of, well thought of, and that people are going to somehow lift you up on a pedestal. Listen, that's how Satan fell was his pride. And many men after him have fallen. Perhaps the majority of men who have fallen have fallen because of the desire to be seen. Resist that. Now here are some that, not a big deal. When I was thinking about this and preparing for this message, I thought, well, the the natural response is, well, that's not a big deal. Food. Addiction to food. Now, I want to, Pause for a moment and address, you know, in the Bible it talks about gluttony. And I'm not going to get into all the reasons that I think gluttony is a sin, especially as the Bible portrayed it at that time because there's there's a trade-off to being gluttonous, especially when you're poor in in a poor culture. If I'm sitting in Africa and nobody has food and I'm gluttonous, it's not just about the food. Right? And there's an aspect to which when we read in the Bible about gluttony and God's condemnation, It's not just that that person is overindulging. It's what they're not doing with the resources God has given them. Gluttony. Screens today. Perhaps knowingly, perhaps unknowingly, I don't know. A lot of these devices have, um, I don't even know what you call it, an app or, or some sort of place you can find on there. How long you're on it in a day. I'd advise you to look at it and think about it. Don't pass over that. Because if it's convicting and you avoid it, you probably should look at it. I think I've told this story before. When I was a teacher, occasionally we would get off topic, completely off topic. And if we hadn't done it in a while, I just kind of let it go, especially if we were having good conversation about something important to their lives. And one day we got to talking about screens. And so I asked every student to get out their phone and go to that little location where it told them, how many hours they average on the phone. And then I took everybody's number and I wrote it down on the board. And that was about, it was in the afternoon, it was about 2 o'clock in the afternoon. And so up to that point, just to 2 o'clock in the afternoon, that day the average had been somewhere between 7 and 8 hours. And I couldn't believe it. One girl, and I saw it for myself, had the phone was... You being used for 12 hours up to that point. And I, I was just amazed because I knew 
that there had been an addiction in our culture with our young people to those devices, but I had no idea the severity until that moment. Can you go without it? Really, that's a question that you have to ask yourself about addiction. How do you know when you're addicted to something? Well, first of all, can I do without it? Can I set it away? Not have anything to do with it? A lot of times the answer is no. Many people, be it a certain, whether, whether it's overindulging in food, whether it's looking at a device, whether it's attending to work, whether, whatever it might be, very often a gauge as to whether you're addicted is can I do without it for a given period of time? Set it down and walk away. And not only can I actually physically do without it, but does my mind allow me to rest from that which has got a control on me? Here not too long ago, uh, I don't want to say this. I had an opportunity to, to do some work. Very few hours a week. And so, as I was talking with this person, they were saying, you know, it's only going to be four or five hours a week and Here's what you'll get paid, and here's all those things. And so I thought about it for a really long time. And then it came to me, they're saying four or five weeks, or four or five hours, excuse me. But you know yourself. You're an all or nothing person. They will pay you for four or five hours a week, but you'll work 15 or 20 hours a week for that four or five hours a week. I thought, nope, I can't do it. Because that which I think, and I'll set all these parameters and I'll set all these rules, but even when I'm out with my family trying to enjoy myself, guess where my mind will be with that? That is indicative of the fact that it may have control on you. If when you are sitting in the house of God and here we're worshiping and you look around and you see some people who Tears are falling from their faces and their hearts are being lifted up with worship. And if you find your mind going to that thing that you desire, if constantly you've got to pull the device out to look at it because it's a source of comfort, then that should be indicative. Maybe something else has control on me. Today, I want to read something that I wrote to you. About children in addiction. Because I would contend that from my generation really forward is when the natural constraints of consumption have really been lifted. Or in other words, there's a lot more stuff available now than what there was perhaps previously. And I would say that a primary job of a parent is to teach their child self-control. So consider this for a moment within the context of the children in our culture. Okay? If a child grows up eating whatever they want, waking up when they want, sleeping whenever they want, being entertained as much as they want, deciding their own friendships and associations, rarely or never working hard jobs, and only being told no when obvious danger or major inconveniences arise, 
Do you really believe they will lay down their life for Christ's sake when he calls them to? Do you believe they will forsake all to follow him? Do you believe they will aim to bring every thought captive to Christ? Spoiling and indulging children places them at a severe disadvantage if they want to pursue a life serving Christ. Parents must teach their children that their impulses and appetites are enemies, not rulers, to satisfy them. It's a very different thing that's being taught today versus what used to be taught even in our culture or in the scriptures. My, my appetites, my impulses are an enemy to me. They're not my friend. And parents ought to resist the constant indulgement of your child. Because here's what happens. They begin, their character begins to develop. It's not about the little piece of candy. It's not about the screen. It's not about all those things. It's about what those things shape the character of that child to become. And if we think or believe that over the course of 18 or 20 or 25 years that a child can basically be indulged with very limit, little or no uh, limits and then when they get to be on their own and we begin to say, come to the house of God, self-control your hobbies and your entertainment because we have church service on Sunday morning, we have church on Sunday night, we have church on Wednesday night, there's a Christmas program you can be a part of, there's a youth weekend you can go to, there's a, there's a youth treat that you can be a part of. There's a youth group that you can come and be a part of. If we think that for 25 years that they can do whatever they want and then suddenly when they can control themselves, they're just going to yield themselves to Christ. We're fooling ourselves. It's not going to happen. And so what it would be, it would be the job of the parent to begin to force their child. Now, here's what parents are very often afraid of. Because there's this idea today, and I'm not sure where it came from, that never force a child to do anything. Well, for me, that that little philosophy came about 20 years too late, right? Because that's not the way that I grew up. And yet, at the same time, I, I wasn't resentful. That's just the way the world was. They're in charge. Why? Because they know more than I do. Because they understand the world greater than what I do. And it may make me mad in the moment. And I may say some mean things about them and mumble them under my breath. But what my parent knows is that what they're doing is for my good. Here's a disclaimer. Make sure that if you do that, that your intentions really are for your child's good and not for your own convenience. Here's what builds resentment in a child. When you're forcing them to do something because you just don't want to. And they look and they see this pattern of behavior in dad and mom. Well, dad and mom have no self-control. And they're just making me their slave so they don't have to demonstrate self-control and hard work. No. I want my children to know, I'll get in the ditch and dig with you. But that doesn't mean you, you don't get to get in the ditch and dig. You got to get there too. And you got to work hard. Because there's a form of self-control and self-discipline that is developed from hard work alone. The Bible commends the little ant, doesn't he? Small creature. Why? Because he's not a sluggard. Because he does work. But listen, this morning, if you're a parent 
And your, your most important ambition for your child is that they truly become a disciple of Jesus Christ. Recognize that cannot and will not happen without you purposely teaching them self-control. You have to do it. Perhaps today we have so many erring from the generations in the last two generations because that wasn't taught. Peace was gained in the moment. Listen, I would say this. I am, if I'm resentful for anything, and I'm not, but if I'm angry about anything from the past, my childhood, it is not that they required me to demonstrate self-control. Rather, it's because they didn't require it. I'll give you a couple analogies. The piano. I can't read music. That really bothers me. And the sense of playing the piano. I listen, Brother Moran, you're here, and I listen to Brother Jeff Moran, and I just, I have an envious spirit. I listen to him play, and I've seen him get up and, and not have a book and play, and I've seen him not know a song and have a book and play it perfect. And there's a part of me that is envious of that ability. When I was taking piano lessons, I took about seven or eight lessons, and I learned to start playing by ear, and so I said, okay, I'm about 17, 18 years old. I'm going to go and take lessons to learn to play the piano. And I went to the piano. I had a really good piano teacher who had taught many students how to play. I sat there. And when you go from playing all over the piano to then just playing Mary Had a Little Lamb with three fingers, what do you need? Self-discipline. So after seven or eight lessons, I quit. And I was permitted to quit. Now, I know some situations are more complex than that, and I, I'm just simplifying it for this lesson's purpose. I'm upset that I was not forced to demonstrate self-discipline because now I have a desire that cannot be attained because I didn't develop the self-discipline. You see, when we fail to develop self-discipline and temperance, it robs the future from accomplishing great things. Because those character qualities and those things worth developing often take a long time to develop. I was 17 years old the first time I ever read a book. I had just got called to preach. And I can vividly remember picking up the book and reading about two pages and shutting it. Why? Because I didn't have the self-discipline to sit in one place without all the distractions and read. And finally, God began to convict me and say, listen, you maybe have not developed self-discipline over the last 17 years, but you can start now. And so here's what I began to do. I'm going to read for 10 minutes, and I'm not going to look up from the book. No matter what, I'm going to read for 10 minutes. And a couple weeks later, I said 15 minutes. No matter what, I'm going to read and develop this self-discipline. Now, imagine... If all I'd ever done is stuck with that five minutes of self-discipline, how can you learn the Bible in five minutes of an attention span? You can't. Here's another way this idea of self-discipline. I want to say this. There are two things. I'm going to begin to conclude with this. There are two things that I can think of that are severely lost when a person lacks self-discipline. Number one, we fail to glorify God because we submit to our will above his will. When God commands us specifically to do things, 
If we lack self-control, we will indulge in our will and not God's will. And I want to note, you develop that self-control often with the development of controlling little things. Small things. We'll choose to serve self instead of God. Here's another point I want to make this morning that really dawned on me this week that I'd never considered before. The lack of self-control is most noticeable during times of crisis. That's whenever you recognize when people lack the gift and development of self-control. Let me give you an example. I was reading this book about Winston Churchill. I've always had a great fascination with him. And there was a point prior to America entering into World War II in the 1940s. You've probably seen, I haven't seen it that I remember. Uh, there's a movie that just came out a few years called, called Dunkirk. And it's a reenactment of that scene. And I'm sure some of these small details I'll get wrong. But there's approximately 300,000 British troops that are fleeing from France because the Nazis are winning. And they're trying to get back to, to England to begin to uh, prepare for the Battle of Britain. And as they're retreating, they need a little time to be able to get from where they're at back to England without the Nazi regime destroying them. And so I was reading this book, something I never knew, and it said that Winston Churchill sent a a message to a general in a city, I think, called Chalet. And he basically said, it's vital that you, in the very least, slow down the Nazi regime. Make your stand there worthy of being called a Brit. Because if you fail to do so, the name Britain might be eradicated from the face of the earth forever. So here was what he told him to do. Fight until you're all dead. Because there's a cause greater than you. It was said before Churchill sent that telegram or that message, it was in the middle of the night, it was two in the morning. And when he had begun to reason the only solution, possible solution, he went out and he walked in the garden by himself. And finally came to the conclusion the only thing that can be done is that these men give their life for others. I have often thought about what that would be like in a battle. I mean, imagine you're a 20-year-old man. You've got a sweetheart back home. You have a potential job. You live in a little town and you love it. and You have a future beyond you. And now you're ordered, basically, to die. Do you have the self-discipline as Timothy tells us, or as Paul tells us in Timothy, to be a faithful soldier? To hold the line for something more valuable than yourself? Or will you flee? Think about a marriage in crisis. I mean, in real crisis. Have you ever heard stories before of, of a woman who's been afflicted with a terrible disease? And... She's perhaps dying and it's perhaps been a long time and her body has changed and her mind has changed. And then all of a sudden what happens? The husband flees. He abandons her. 
his lack of self-control became noticeable when? When marriage wasn't pleasant and happy and fun. It's when it was difficult. In the work of the Lord, it is absolutely no different. In our day, I've seen very often young people come into a church and we're not as spiritual as what we ought to be. And things are not, we're not evangelizing to the community as effective as what we would like. And we're not reaching and and there's not excitement in the house of God. And so rather than maintain the self-discipline and stay faithful to God, what happens? They run to things of a baser sort that for a moment give them pleasure and passion. And yet one day, will not all these things brought be before God in the judgment? I'll conclude this morning by just saying this. If a person is going to exercise any deal of mature, significant faith and accomplish anything for the cause of Christ in this life, they must have self-control. They must be able to put their body with the help of Christ. We've already tried to establish that with the help of the Holy Spirit. But listen, there are times when, have you ever felt the battle come like you felt the battle warring within you between what you wanted to do and what God wanted you to do? And it welled up in you? Have you ever had those moments where perhaps just to use a simple analogy and I'll close, you're angry about something. Really angry. And you're about to just blow the top off on somebody. And then you're stopped. And you really, really want to say what you want to say because it's a really good put down. It's going to alleviate some of that pressure inside to just react. And yet, you hear either the voice of your conscience or the voice of the Holy Spirit saying, No! And there you are in that momentary battle. More often than not, whenever a person is seeking to be conformed to the likeness of Christ by developing self-control, that happens frequently. This morning, what is a silent sin that very often nobody talks about? The lack of self-control. If we will accomplish anything as a church for you as an individual for the cause of Christ. Even when Paul said, it's, it's, it's an incredible thought, take every thought captive. He's talking about a degree of self-control where you even control those sinful things that come through your mind and subjecting them to the cause of Christ. I hope this morning it would be helpful to you to consider this truth. God's people, a essential part of maturing in our walk in Christ is to eradicate sin. One such sin is that of intemperance. I hope this morning God would help us to do that. Um, Pray for your brothers and sisters here. Give you an exercise to try. 40 days. 40 days. Give up something that you presently know you ought not to depend on. It can be something you don't share with anybody, something very personal that nobody even knows you're dependent upon. Forty days, give it up. And I would, I would bet, I don't think you can say that from the pulpit, I would assume, right? Um, 
that in that endeavor, God will begin to work things in you that you know is needed. That's our message this morning. I appreciate your patience and how long-winded it was. These things have really been burning on my heart this week, and I hope they're of some benefit to you.